right, we are back. Let us cite the unusual fact that the cover of The Economist last week featured the periodic table of the elements and a happy birthday salute. Our favorite science magazine, New Scientist, could not resist to having a lengthy piece on the periodic table. So we're going to cite from that and a lot more and talk about this most succinct chart of nature. I can remember sitting in high school class with a big periodic table up behind the professor and, and finding it just endlessly fascinating. The odds there, dear listener, you did not. But let us strive to explain perhaps why it is you should be fascinated by it. New scientist said, what makes the periodic table so iconic and worth lauding is the fact of how it makes sense of nature. Each type of atom, the fundamental building blocks of matter, is laid out neatly in order of ascending mass. And if by magic, a periodicity repeating pattern in their properties emerges. As a visual symbol of how reason helps us understand the material world, there is nothing quite like it. It stands for completeness and order. To quote from their piece, 150 years ago, a Siberian chemist named Dmitry Mendeleev sent a manuscript to his publishers. It contained an outline of the periodic table, descendants of which would go on to grace the walls of schools the world over. It depicts the chemical elements that make up everything around us, and at a glance conveys a sense of order to the building blocks of everything. But don't be fooled. The periodic table didn't appear complete and out of nowhere. It had a troubled birth. And allow me to pop for a moment out of the writings of The Economist and New Scientist to go to one of our favorite books on this program, The 100, a ranking of the most influential persons in history by Michael H. Hart. I have felt over the years that my friends' personal libraries are not complete unless they have a copy, so I went out and I think purchased 10 of them at one time and gave them away. As I recall, in the first edition of the book, Hart ranked Dmitry Mendeleev in the top 100. In the second edition, however, he got demoted to the second 100, who were not written much about. His place was instead taken by John Dalton, who came in at number 32, which to Michael Hart's way of thinking ranks him ahead of Alexander the Great and Napoleon. Why so high a ranking? Well, Michael Hart said that John Dalton was the English scientist who, in the early 19th century, introduced the atomic hypothesis into the mainstream of science. By doing so, he provided the key data that made possible the enormous progress in chemistry since his day. And yes, it's true. Dalton published a chart of atomic weights of different elements that was critical to the formulation of the periodic table. Well, I'm not sure that I would rank Dalton as high as Michael Hart does. That's the fun thing about this book, arguing about who should be where. Before we talk about Mendeleev, we do need to backtrack and review some of the prototype theories that Mendeleev will later repurpose to his 1869 proposal. The Economist jumps back even before John Dalton to cite a Frenchman, which is kind of unusual for an English publication. They start out with Antoine Laurent de Lavoisier. By the way, Michael Hart thinks even more highly of Lavoisier than he does of Dalton and Mendeleev. He ranked him 20th among the most influential persons in history because, according to Hart, he was the most important figure in the development of chemistry. Anyway, The Economist notes that Lavoisier, argued by some to be the greatest chemist of all, did unfortunately lose his head in the French Revolution because he'd been a member of a firm that collected the monarchy's various imposts and then having taken its cut, passed what remained onto the royal treasury. Noted the magazine that he and many of his fellow farmers met their ends beneath the guillotine's blade is no surprise, 
But what had distinguished Lavoisier from his fellows, though, was that he chose to spend his income for the best-equipped chemistry laboratory in Europe. It was Lavoisier who published the first putatively comprehensive list of chemical elements, substances incapable of being broken down further by chemical reactions into other substances. It was Lavoisier and his wife Marie-Anne who pioneered the technique of measuring quantitatively what went into and what came out of chemical reactions as a way of getting to the heart of what such a reaction really is. Lavoisier's list of elements, published in 1789, five years before his execution, had 33 entries. Of those, 23, a fifth of the total now recognized, have stood the test of time. Some, like gold, iron, and sulfur, had been known since ancient days. Others, like manganese, molybdenum, and tungsten, were recent discoveries. What the list did not have was a structure. It was, in essence, a stamp collection, but the album was missing. Speaking of stamp collections, I can't resist the quote from Ernest Rutherford, who referred to all non-physics science as stamp collecting. Anyway, back to Lavoisier, or the Lavoisiers, and their careful measurements of chemical reactions. From their work came the law of conservation of matter. Chemistry, it proposes, transforms the nature of substances, but not their total mass. That fact established another Frenchman, Louis-Joseph Proust, extended the idea with the law of definite proportions. Published in 1794, It states that the ratio by weight of the elements in a chemical compound is always the same. It was not depend upon the compound's method of preparation. And you got a hint at these scientists back in the day. They were also taking into account the mass lost in gases when they were part of a chemical reaction. Anyway, unfortunately for Proust, he did not arrive at the idea of compounds being made of particles of different weights. That insight had to wait for John Dalton to come along. Now, dating back to ancient Greece, there was an idea that the basic building block of of matter were these indivisible particles called atoms, but nobody really kind of believed it. They thought of it more of a convenient device. Dalton was sure it was true, literally true. And today's history of chemistry and physics also needs to mention Jacob Berzelius, a Swede. It was he who furnished chemistry with the language we still use today. It was he who came up with the idea of the abbreviations that now occupy the periodic table's rectangles. It was he who combined those abbreviations with numbers indicating the proportions involved to make formula for chemical compounds, like H2O, water, H2SO4, sulfuric acid, NaCl, table salt. And it was he who used these formula to describe reactions in chemistry. Berzelius also used Alexandros Volta's recently invented battery to create electricity from a chemical reaction in this case to do the reverse in chemical reactions. Berzelius employed electricity to drive chemical reactions in solutions, for example, releasing metallic copper from a solution of copper sulfate, a process called electrolysis. Back in England, Humphrey Davy, inventor of the miner's safety lamp, which made him a lot of money, picked up this idea of electrolysis and supercharged it. He employed a more powerful version of Volta's battery to decompose molten materials rather than solutions. In this way, he discovered sodium and potassium in 1807. The next year, he discovered magnesium, calcium, strontium, barium, and boron, while also showing that chlorine, previously thought to be a compound of oxygen, was itself actually an element. After Davy's work, new elements came in thick and fast. In 1811, iodine. In 1817, cadmium and selenium. In 1821, lithium. In 1823, silicon. Aluminum and bromine came along in 1825. By now, there was enough of them to take the next step on the journey. 
It was apparent from the time of their discovery that sodium and potassium were quite similar, as were calcium, strontium, and barium. Lithium, when discovered, proved similar to sodium and potassium. Meanwhile, bromine and iodine proved similar to chlorine. In 1829, Johann Dobreiner, a German, noticed a curiosity about these trios, which today would be recognized as the vertical part of the periodic table. Similarities were seen among certain elements. This was the first hint of an underlying pattern. As more and more elements turned up, the search for order intensified. In 1864, John Newlands of Britain almost got it. He published what he called the Law of Octaves, arranging the known elements in order of atomic weight. He believed he discerned a musical-like scale. Every eighth element rhymed. There is something to Newlands' scheme, still visible in the modern periodic table. But there were many holes in his particular notions, especially at the higher atomic weights where the pattern broke down. He was met with ridicule. After Mendeleev's system was published, Newlands claimed priority, although it is noted that his scheme lacked the innovations that made the Russians so brilliant. And one little curious bit of what might have been, prior to Newlands, a Frenchman, Alexandre-Emile Berguet de Chancourtois, I hope I got that right, was in fact the first person to list elements in, in order of these revised weights which had been produced by recent, more accurate analyses. He plotted the weights on a spiral on the outside of a cylinder and noticed the elements with similar properties lined up in vertical columns. He called this the telluric screw, as tellurium was the center of his system. Unfortunately, when he published his paper in 1862, the journal left out his explanatory diagram, making it virtually impossible for readers to visualize his arrangement. Few people took note. It was later claimed by Dmitry Mendeleev that the idea he came to for putting his elements in order came to him in a dream. The economist notes that, well, maybe, but after having worked for four days on the problem without much rest, the boundary between sleep and wakefulness may have been blurred. At any rate, Mendeleev went with his idea and got it published. His grid was not perfect. Indeed, it was full of holes. But the holes, some of them anyway, turned out to be the keystones. Although there was no reason in the 1860s to believe that all the elements had been discovered, John Newlands behaved as if they had been. Mendeleev had enough confidence to leave gaps in order to make his pattern work. At the time, some took this as a sign of weakness. In fact, it was a sign of strength. The more so because for several of the gaps, he described in detail the properties of the elements he predicted would fill them. And these predictions were, by and large, fulfilled. Now, the screwy thing about this pattern in nature of why characteristics repeat has to do with the electrons orbiting in the outer orbital and atoms tend to have multiple orbitals at least anything after the first two hydrogen helium does turns out that's the basis for chemistry the electrons determine at least those outer electrons determine what an element is going to do with itself and in one of the great mysteries of nature it turns out that these electron orbitals like to have certain numbers they're very happy when they have a certain number in fact, if you look at the periodic table on this right-hand column, you'll notice the noble gases. These particular elements are so happy with the number of electrons they have in their outer shell, they don't see any reason to interact with other atoms, period. An interesting sidelight to the noble gases, it turns out that the first one of them, helium, was discovered not on planet Earth, but on the Sun. Well, at least before it turned up here on Earth. This had to do with the absorption of certain wavelengths of light related to the atomic orbitals and how they get absorbed by gases from the sun. This is actually way more chemistry than I need to get into today. And physics. We don't need all the details. 
For excellent summaries, we would refer you back to New Scientist and The Economist for their wonderful essays on this topic, which I'm excerpting from. We just want to note that the original periodic tables were based on atomic weights, but it turns out that there was a more fundamental number, the atomic number, which, if you recall from your chemistry, is the number of protons in the nucleus of a given atom. Scientists figured these numbers out through the work of Henry Moseley. He found a mathematical relationship between an element's X-ray spectrum when you bombard it with electrons and its atomic number. Moseley's X-ray spectrum demonstrated that an element's atomic number does not depend directly on its atomic weight. And again, referring you back to high school or college chemistry, various atoms have various weights depending upon the neutrons they have in their nucleus. Elements with different numbers of neutrons form different isotopes. In fact, those numbers, the atomic weights, are what make the periodic table so bloody accurate. Now, when it comes to chemistry, it turns out that no element can be transmuted into another element. That's what the alchemists tried to do. They tried to make gold out of lead and get rich. But it turns out, ladies and gentlemen, you can't do it with chemistry. But when we got into the atomic age and learned about radioactivity and particles flying out of unstable atoms, it was discovered that, in fact, you could change one element into another. In fact, scientists somewhere, I don't know, about a generation ago, decided to take a bunch of lead and turn it into gold, which they were able to do. Unfortunately, it was so expensive that the process uh, would not pay for itself. So let's talk about the first man-made element. There was a gap in the periodic table. Right below manganese, currently at number 25, you find a gap at 43 where no one was able to find any elements on Earth with that atomic number. In the strange, mysterious world that is nuclear physics, it, it turns out that element 43, in fact, has no stable isotopes. There was no doubt some around when a supernova blew up and created what became the solar system four and a half billion years ago. With a half-life of just 2.6 million years, it's all gone. By the way, astronomers studying supernova explosions did find the characteristic uh, uh, signature of technesium in those explosions. Anyway, realizing by the 1930s that you could change one atom into another bomb bomb by bombarding it with some atomic particles, they set out to create element 43 and they succeeded in 1937. Because it was created by technology, it was forever named afterwards technesium, although it's spelled technidium. I've always heard it pronounced technesium, as in you're going to get a technesium scan in medicine. And let's talk about technesium scans. It is the isotope technesium-98 that has that half-life of 2.6 million years ago. Another isotope, technesium-99, doesn't stick around for nearly as long. In fact, it has a half-life of just six hours. If you can create a tiny amount of it and inject it into the body... It will deliver a much smaller radiation dose than does iodine-131 and will give you sharper and more detailed pictures when you do a bone scan. Depending on what you attach the atom to, what compound, it can light up different organs selectively. The thyroid, heart, lungs, bones, liver, spleen, kidneys, etc. Today, about 80-90% to 90 of all nuclear scans are done with technesium-99. You know, at this point in time, I realize there's so much I want to say on this topic that we're going to create a special edition of Radio Parallax to look at where all this may lead. 
I expect we'll record that in the near future and stash it aside for next June when we anticipate taking a vacation for a few months. Some radio parallel segments that are not time-dependent would come in pretty handy, don't you think? Anyway, reading up for this talk we're having today about chemistry and physics and the periodic table, I, I came across a couple really interesting factoids. Now, the periodic table looks kind of like a, a castle. It's got a tower on the left and a tower on the right and sort of a lower wall in the middle. Consider that lower wall to be the metals. There are 10 columns. If you go to the 10th column and go three down, where patterns repeat, that's where you find mercury. It's below one column over among this heaviest of heavy metals, you find gold. And by the time you get down to elements 80, mercury, 79, gold, you got a pretty big-ass nucleus. Meaning you got 79 or 80 protons down there, creating a big old electrical attraction to the electrons trying to orbit it. In fact, there's such an attraction, creating a stronger pull, that to stay in orbit, these electrons have to go fast. This is where Einstein enters the discussion. By the time you reach Mercury, the electrons are traveling at 58% the speed of light. And according to Einstein's special theory of relativity, that means their effective mass is significantly higher than electrons' normal mass, which exacerbates the inward pull they feel. The upshot is that Mercury's electrons orbit so tightly they can't be shared to form bonds with other atoms, as is required to make a good and proper solid. Which, why, which is why Mercury, as we all know it, just prefers to hang out with itself and is in fact liquid at room temperature. These relativistic effects apparently also infect gold. Most metals are silvery in color. Gold is not. Apparently its unique color has to do with the relativistic effects and how they change the way gold's electrons absorb light. Of course, if there's any chemists out there listening or physicists, could you please explain to me why copper also has color even though it not doesn't have that big-ass nucleus? Now, Albert Einstein, who was, by all accounts, the most famous scientist of his day, is famous in history for having jump-started the Manhattan Project, where we built atomic weapons using very large atoms, ones at the high end of the periodic table. Truth is, when atoms reach a certain size, they no longer remain stable. The heaviest universally recognized as stable element is lead, number 82 on the periodic table. Right next to it is bismuth, and actually bismuth is pretty stable. It has a half-life of something like, I don't know, 40 billion years. So if you do wait long enough, your Pepto-Bismol will go bad. As I'm describing this right now, I'm looking at my t-shirt, which has imprinted on the front of it the periodic table of the elements, and I've got to say I've got a real beef with this graphic presentation. I think we're going to spend the rest of the show talking about that. Radio Parallax is not afraid to go head-to-head with the authorities in the world of physics and tell them that they are full of it. When I was a lad, sitting in my high school chemistry class, looking up at the periodic table, which I believe was also present in the physics class, the highest element listed was Laurentium, element 103. The truth is, ladies and gents, pretty much everything above element 94, plutonium, is shaky. Americium comes in at 95, and we have more to say about that element in a second or two. But in our opinion, curium, berkelium, californium, einsteinium, fermium, mendelevium, nobelium, and lorentium are largely a con. The truth is, the only way you're going to find these elements is inside of atom smashers. Now, element 92, uranium, is surprisingly common on planet Earth. 
Yes, with time it will break down. Eventually all the uranium in the universe will turn into lead. It'll do it in various steps, becoming different elements along the way. Now the most stable isotope, uranium-238, which is 99.3% of natural uranium, has a half-life of 4.4 billion years, meaning, since that's about the age of the Earth, we have about half of what we started with. Uranium-235, the kind you make bombs out of, the more fissionable kind, is only 0.7% of natural uranium, but its half-life is 700 million years, meaning it's gone through six-plus half-lives. Meaning back when the Earth was still a molten sphere, there was about 64 times as much of that isotope. Now, it turns out the reason these big atoms are so unstable is that as their nuclear gets bigger and bigger and takes up more space, the strong atomic force, which is incredibly powerful over very short distances, is so strong it's able to overcome all of that repulsion of electric forces, all those positive protons trying to scatter away from one another are glued in place by the strong force. But as you get a bigger and bigger nucleus, that strong force has a harder and harder time holding in the herd. And wouldn't you know it, there are certain numbers of protons in the nucleus that are more stable than others. By the time you've blown past uranium, these large nuclei get pretty impossible to hold together. Well, not that impossible. Plutonium-244, the most stable isotope, will stick together for an 8 million year half-life. Not bad. But move one up to the artificially created americium, element 95, and you'll find the most stable isotope only sticks around 7,000 years. By the way, one of the scientists who created americium in uh, particle accelerators, Glenn Seaborg, thought to patent it. When you own the patent on something, you can make lots of uh, money off of applications of it. So it is that you have americium, the element above plutonium, which is, by the way, more fissionable than weapons-grade plutonium and at least as toxic, is in all of our houses. It is, in fact, in most of our smoke detectors. But in the three minutes or so I have left, I want to bag on all the elements above americium. Best you can do with curium is a half-life of 348,000 years. Berkelium, which has one of those unhappy numbers that makes it less stable, best you're going to do is 330 days. Californium, you're back up to 351 years, but Einsteinium, you drop back down to 20 days, and so on. If you're at fermium, element number 100, named after the great Enrico Fermi, best you're going to do is 100 days. Anyway, 100 days you can work with. I wouldn't mind having one of those high school periodic tables that goes up to 103. I think these are legitimate elements. Even the most stable of element 101 sticks around only 50 days. 102, 58 minutes. By the time you're at element 103, Lorentzium, if you can create some in a reactor or accelerator, you got three minutes to look at it. After three minutes, half of it's gone, three more minutes, three quarters of it's gone, three more minutes, etc. So we at Radio Parallax propose to be a real element on the periodic table. you got to be able to stick around at least three minutes. Now back to my t-shirt. To create the graphic of this wonderful colored periodic table, they've added another row besides... Element 103, it starts at 104 and runs all the way out to 118. It's bunk. Rutherfordium, Dubnium, Seaborgium, Borium, Hassium, Mitnerium, Darmstadtium, Rentgenium, Copernicum, blah, blah, blah. I did like the fact that they're going to name everything an eum. They decided in the column below, fluorine, chlorine, bromine, the element 117 that would fit there chemically, they're going to call an ene. And as for element 118, which, due to its chemistry, ought to be more stable than others. Element 118 has been named 
Oganon, after Yurgi Oganessian, the scientist who, with the help of Lawrence Livermore, has been creating heavier and heavier elements in Russia. Well, they create one atom of these a month, apparently. It's hard to tell much about its characteristics because apparently its half-life is 890 microseconds. Now, in our opinion, if you've got one atom a month to work with and it sticks around for less than a microsecond, I think you can take it off the t-shirt. When you take off that bottom row, the rest of the squares can be just a little bit bigger and more readable. And although I don't plan to take my t-shirt back, I do hope that we can start a movement to create a better periodic table of the elements t-shirt. Anyway, I'm enjoying this topic so much, we're going to do a special show on it in the not-too-distant future. Unfortunately, we're out of time. Our producer today and every day was Edward McMillan. I'm your host, Douglas Everett, and we'd like to go out with our outro music today with the appropriate and hilarious, if you think about it, tune by Tom Lear titled The Elements. We'll see you next week. Now, if I may digress momentarily from the mainstream of this evening's symposium, I'd like to (laughs) sing a song which is completely pointless, but is something which I picked up during my career as a scientist. This may prove useful to some of you someday, perhaps, in a somewhat bizarre set of circumstances. It's simply the names of the chemical elements set to a possibly recognizable tune. arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen, and oxygen, and nitrogen, and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and golden protactinium, and indium, and gallium, and iodine, and thorium, and thulium, and thallium. There's yttrium, ytterbium, actinium, rubidium, aboran, gadolinium, niobium, iridium, and strontium, and silicon, and silver, and samarium, and bismuth, bromine, lithium, beryllium, and barium. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> I knew you would. I hope you're all taking notes because there's going to be a short quiz next period. <laughs> there's holmium and helium and hafnium and erbium and phosphorus and francium and fluorine and terbium and manganese and mercolium and lithium and magnesium, dysprosium and scandium and cerium and cesium and lead, praseodymium and platinum and plutonium, palladium, promethium, potassium, polonium and tantalum, tenesium, titanium, tellurium and cadmium and calcium and chromium and curium. There's sulfur, californium, and fermium, berkelium, and also mendelevium, einsteinium, nobelium, and arca, kryptonium, radon, xenon, zinc, and rhodium, and chlorine, carbon, cobalt, copper, tungsten, tin, and sodium. These are the only ones of which the news has come to Harvard. And there may be many others, but they haven't been discovered. Uh.